I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, August 8th, 2011. everything today. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We do the comparative work. It's politically incorrect. And you know what's really funny? I was thinking about this the other day. <clears throat> yeah, I share a thing. You know, there's, there's these people out there who say things like, well, is it really Christian of you, Chris, to name names? And, 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 you know, can't you just, you know, correct the error without naming the person who said it? Um, <clears throat> got a question for you. Uh, church history question. Um. Folks, do you know who the Arian heresy was named after? Arius, yeah, it's uh, the Pelagian heresy. Do you know who the Pelagian heresy was named after? Uh, Pelagius. How about the Marcionite heresy? Are you familiar with the uh, Marcionite heresy? Yeah, that was named after Marcius. Um, Yeah, you see, um, church history is full of all of these heretical teachings, and the heretical teachings are actually named after the heretic who taught the heresy. So, I mean, if we were to really follow the example of our Christian forebears, um, we should talk about the Warrenite heresy. We should talk about the McLarenite heresy. We should talk about the Joel Osteenite heresy. Uh, you, you get what I'm saying? So, yeah, it, 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 you're not more pious or more spiritual if you uh, refuse to name names. In fact, that's just flat-out silliness. 
the church throughout its history has not only addressed and put down the heresies that have been taught and put forward by heretics, it has historically named the heresies after the person who taught the heresy. So, um, and there is no biblical passage that anybody could point to that says, "Now, when you name, a, when you when you critique someone's teaching, don't n- mention the person by name. Just, uh, you know, just uh, make sure that you address the error, but don't say who who's saying that error. You, no, no, you don't want to do that. No, it, yeah, no, it sounds so pious when when you're doing that. That's a silly. That's absolutely silly. When somebody's teaching heresy." You you uh, you let everybody know who the person is who's teaching it, so they can avoid them like the plague. They're marked out as uh, people who should be avoided, and their doctrines to be rejected. And then you give the give biblical reason why what they're teaching is in accord with sound doctrine. <clears throat> All right, so <clears throat> so that's how I'm starting Monday off. It's just unbelievable. I just just absolutely silly to me. I mean, you know. Look, Get a get a book on on the ancient heresies of the early church, and they're named after every one of the heretics. I just you know, kind of shows you that uh, throughout the Christian history, you know, and, you know, a more pristine form of Christianity never had a problem with naming uh, the heretic who was teaching the heresy. So anyway, that's my argument. I'm sticking to it. So uh, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of. Fighting for the faith. So I'm going to start off with a uh, a quick op-ed. I don't even know if you can call it a, an op-ed piece. It's more like a series of questions. Uh, but the main question of the uh, article is, is America still Christian? Is America still Christian? And uh, in this, I, I see, I don't know who actually wrote this, but uh, this was published in The Guardian in the UK. Uh, in this, uh, the uh, person who wrote these series of questions uh, as to whether or not is America still Christian, is uh, pointing out the fact that the uh, conservative religion that has uh, that has replaced or that apparently is growing in the United States um, has its ties to Rick Warren, and the question is whether or not it's actually even Christian. That's uh, the so we'll take a look at that quick piece there from the uh, uh, the Guardian in the UK. And while we're talking about Rick Warren, uh, we're going to switch gears. Rick Warren uh, spoke recently at the uh, the General Assembly of the Assemblies of God, and this was last week, and um, not the first time he's spoken there. But um, I'm going to ask the question, is Rick Warren a Pentecostal Calvinist? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because uh, remember when uh, when I did my uh, debrief uh, with uh, on the John Piper Rick Warren interview um, uh, the, with Phil Johnson. Uh, one of the things we kept coming out uh, against the, was this fact that uh, Rick Warren is well, he's chameleonic, um, and so uh, Rick Warren's chameleon-like behavior was well on display uh, this past week. At these at the assemblies of God meeting, and so we gotta we gotta highlight that for you. And uh, while we're at it, we'll also take a look at how he handled God's word in his speech there to the uh, uh, assemblies of God, and how he handled Isaiah forty nine. Let's just say that uh, Rick Warren, true to his form, was um, did a miserable job of handling God's word, Isaiah chapter forty nine. So we'll take a look at that. Um, I've got a Joel Osteen update. Joel Osteen uh, recently uh, spoke. To a uh, to, well, you know, he had his annual event, America's Night of Hope, kind of thing, and uh, it was in Chicago at uh, I think where the White Sox play. And um, so I got a you know I've got a news story about that. We'll take a look at that and, and use the opportunity to introduce our brand new Joel Ups, uh, Osteen update music. 
Um, I've got a, a news story out of uh, out of Holland. Apparently, they're, they've invented a new Christianity there in Holland, but it's the same old tired stuff that we've heard liberals say for years. And uh, so we'll take a look at that. And uh, then what we're going to do in our sermon review is we're going to go to the C3 Exchange up in Michigan, and uh, which, by the way, started off as a Christian church. The, the C3 Exchange, this is Ian Lawton's church. They, remember, they made the headlines because Ian Lawton came in and took the cross down and uh, and well, Ian Lawton is well. He's a he's a darling. He's one of the heroes of uh, postmodern emergent Christianity. And uh, this is a guy who calls himself spiritual but not religious. And uh, and he recently had a female rabbi by the name of Rabbi Shava Bachli, and uh, she uh, she pronounced <laughs> she came in and gave. Uh, a sermon? I don't know what to call this thing. Uh, she sermonized, if you would. And the thing is, is that this creepy, weird stuff uh, that uh, she was saying in this sermon is a lot of the same stuff I'm hearing in emergent circles. In fact, some of the points that this female rabbi makes um, are exactly the same points I've heard Phyllis Tickle make at Mars Hill Bible Church, at, at Rob Bell's church. And so you, you're going to need to listen to this gal. And by the way, this is where this postmodern liberalism goes, okay? Because it it embraces mysticism, it embraces uh, and embraces it's a form of universalism as a result of it. And so this is the logical outcome of postmodern liberalism. And, and you cannot mix Christianity with post modernity and and mysticism because. It, it, well, it's not compatible. It ceases to be Christian. And so where do you hear the scowl? But here's the deal. The things you're going to hear, they're going to sound absolutely bizarre, like new age kind of crazy kind of stuff. But this isn't what, what she's saying is is not foreign to the so-called pulpits uh, or conversations of, uh, of postmodern liberals who call themselves Christian. So, uh, yeah, the, you got... So that's what we're going to be covering today. So uh, you know, make yourself comfortable, fuzzy bunny slippers if you can. Uh, you know, in your neck of the woods, depending on the weather. I'm looking forward to the fall. Oh man, yeah, it's just, I'm, I'm kind of d- done with the old whole hot, hot, hot days that with humidity every day. You know, it just makes it so I can't quite enjoy my outdoor activities as much. And football's you know coming around the corner too, so it's something to look forward to. So. With that, let's dive into the program proper. From the uh, Guardian in the UK, the uh, headline reads, Is America Still Christian? Now, I do not know who wrote this. I don't have a byline. So um, the the subhead to this is, Rick Perry's prayer rally drew 30,000 people in Houston, but... Were they really Christians or worshipers of America? Which is actually a fair question. But this whole piece seems to be a bunch of questions. But uh, let me pass this along to you. So whoever wrote this says, is America still a Christian country? It's obviously full of people who call themselves Christians and certainly full of religious believers in a way that's difficult for many Europeans to understand or to accept. But is what modern Americans believe actually Christianity at all? I would say in many cases it's not. They continue. When the mainstream churches went into an apparently irreversible decline toward the end of the 20th century, this was interpreted as a decline of liberal Christianity and its replacement by fundamentalism. But is the church of Rick Warren anything more than vaguely therapeutic moralistic deism? (laughs) 
<laughs> so whoever wrote this uh, uh, put their finger on the problem, uh, the, the ground zero for the problem. That's Rick Warren and his brand of Christianity. They continue. The question is hardly a new one. It was raised at least as long ago as the late 19th century by Henry Adams, who wondered whether the American faith in progress and in self-improvement was really the same thing as traditional Christianity. But it's still an interesting one. Has the evangelical movement turned itself into an entirely new religion that it's unrecognizable to Orthodox Christianity, a reinterpretation of the Christian myths almost as strange as Mormonism? Yeah, I, I, I think in many cases that's actually true. Consider the YouTube video of a NASCAR chaplain praying for all the sponsors of the event from Toyota to Sunoku and then thanking God for his hot wife before finishing with the doxology of boogity, 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 amen. Is this really anything that traditional theologians could recognize as Christian or is it just a wrapper around some mixture of superstition and advertising. Ouch. Uh, yeah. Uh, is America still Christian? Yeah. This was published today in the Guardian in the UK. I, I, I think these are the right questions to be asking. Yeah, because as somebody who subscribes to historic Orthodox Christianity, what I see going on in America, especially the what was going on at Governor Rick Perry's the response and who was there. Oh man. That's not a Christianity I recognize as historic Christianity at all. That's that's a completely different Americanized beast, if you would. And, uh, yeah, I, I might have to cover some of the stuff said at the response, but uh, I'm still sifting through all of that. Anyway, um, let's see here. Um, yeah, let's do this. Um, we're going to have a Rick Warren update, and that requires me to play our Rick Warren update music. Purpose. It keeps you going strong Like a car with a full tank of gas Everyone else has a purpose So what's mine? Oh look, here's a penny It's from the year I was born It's a Yeah, there we go. Okay, so uh, that's our Rick Warren update music. Um, so uh, here's a question <laughs> to lead off this segment. Uh, the question is, um, is Rick Warren a Pentecostal Calvinist? And <laughs> you're going, um, Roseboro, uh, come on, seriously. Yeah, well, Rick Warren, he, I mean, he tried to pass himself off as a monergist. <laughs> To uh, to John Piper, you know, because you know he's a firm believer in monergism, and uh, yeah, go back and listen to my debrief with uh, uh, Phil Johnson on this. Uh, Rick Warren, he, he's chameleonic; he tries to be all things to all people. And uh, here's uh, how he kind of sh- started his conversation last week at the General Assembly of the Assemblies of God. Hey, Hello, listen, my brothers and sisters. 
It's good to see you. And I want to tell you, first of all, a, a, a praise and a congratulations. Um, I was reading uh, about a month ago uh, uh, the Pentecostal Evangel, which, by the way, I read every week. Yeah, isn't it weird? I mean, he's uh, <laughs> Rick Warren. He every week he reads the uh, the primary magazine of the Assemblies of God, uh, and 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 on top of it, while he's reading that every week, he's read the entire works of Jonathan Edwards. Weird. I mean, this. I mean, makes me. If, if, it makes me wonder if I were to have a conversation with uh, Rick Warren, if you know, do an interview with him on camera, would he say, "Oh, I've read the entire works of uh, Martin Luther"? Yeah. Again, listen, and this is. Rick Warren being chameleonic. Um, I was reading uh, about a month ago uh, uh, the Pentecostal Evangel, which, by the way, I read every week. I get it at, at home. And, by the way, I'm glad you put Pentecostal back in the name because it was just Evangel for a while, you know, remember? And because you should never be ashamed of being Pentecostal. In Pentecost is every model that we need in that event God not only started the church, he laid out the model for the church. And if we'll just follow it, we will have Pentecostal results. And so we should never be afraid or ashamed of that name. What does he mean, Pentecostal results? Well, is, that, is Rick Warren embracing speaking in gibberish? I mean, so-called speaking in tongues. But... And so we should never be afraid or ashamed of that name. Notice the personal pronouns there. Let me play that again. We, we, he's considering himself part of the assemblies of God. Listen. And so we should never be afraid or ashamed of that name. So he considers himself a Pentecostal. Really? A Pentecostal Calvinist. Pentecostal monergist. But... uh... In one of the articles that I read in Pentecostal Evangel, it was talking about how now that uh, 30 or 40 percent of Assembly of God churches here in America are now ethnic churches. You remember that article? I think you wrote it. Somebody did. Somebody did. Somebody did. <laughs> and uh, and and uh, and I, I praise you for that because 37 percent of America is now ethnic. It's non-white Anglo. Americans, 37% of our nation. So, Assemblies of God, you're doing a great job of representing the makeup of our nation. Because with 40% of our churches being ethnic, that means we're actually ahead of the curve. Again, I, th- I just think that's a perfect example of uh, Rick Warren's chameleonic behavior. I mean, I mean, not only has he read the entire works of Jonathan Edwards, he weekly reads the Pentecostal magazine put out by the Assemblies of God, and uh, and he's praising them for you know, for their particular diversity, if you would, ethnic diversity. Okay, wow, interesting. But uh, that's not the most interesting thing that Rick Warren said while he was speaking to the um, the folks there at the Assemblies of God. And before I get to what he said, I think it's important that we actually look at the biblical passage first. And and uh, and and consult a good comment, at least a decent commentary, to see what this passage is all about. If you have your Bible, flip on over to the uh, to the uh, prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter forty nine, Isaiah chapter forty nine, and uh, <clears throat> we're gonna read the ba- the passage first, and then see how Rick Warren handles the text. And so he- here we go. <clears throat> Here's what it says. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. 
The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, in his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vanity. Yet surely my right is as with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Okay, that's uh, Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 6. Now, immediately the question is, who is Isaiah talking about? Okay, Um, in fact, let me read from just a general evangelical commentary. Okay, Um, this isn't a Lutheran commentary. This is the NIV commentary, which was put together by evangelicals at the time the NIV came out originally. Here's here's what uh, the NIV commentary says. Although a collective interpretation of this passage is not impossible and is naturally suggested by consideration of verse 3, a straightforward application to Israel is ruled out by verses 5 through 7. The reader is therefore forced by this material itself to face the question, who is this? If the first song can be viewed as contemplating the ministry of Jesus, the servant and prospect from the perspective of his baptism, this second song seems to be looking back at that ministry from its close. The distant nations are to benefit from his work, so he calls them to listen. This harmonizes with the prophetic ministry to which he was predestined. In verse 2, the penetrating character of the servant's message is likened to a, a two sharp weapons, and the implications of the second weapon are developed to bring out a further point. Concealment in the quiver suggests an eternal purpose manifest at the appropriate time. Now, I'm going to point this out here. Every single one of the commentaries that I have looked at that try to explain what is going on in Isaiah chapter 49, every single one of them, and I consulted roughly about uh, 10 of them today, every single one of them points out that what the person who's being spoken of in Isaiah 49 is Jesus, that this is a prophecy of Jesus. This is who is being discussed here, Okay. So that being the case, um, we should be hearing Rick Warren preaching about Jesus in his handling of Isaiah 49. Now, so, I mean, here's the deal. In this, this is a prophecy talking about Jesus' work and that he's not going to restore just the people of Jacob, but that he's going to be a light to the nations, to the Gentiles as well, and that his salvation will reach the end of the earth. This is a prophecy of about the Messiah, the servant. And then later in Isaiah 53, actually end of 52 and into 53, this servant then becomes the suffering servant. This is the servant that 
you know, this is all prophecy, messianic prophecy about Jesus and what he's going to do. And this isn't the first major prophecy of Jesus in uh, Isaiah, far from it. So with that in mind, a proper, we looked at the passage, we've consulted a generic evangelical uh, commentary that says that Isaiah 49 here, verses 1 through 6, are speaking about Jesus and his ministry and the impact that it would have and the salvation that he would bring to all of the earth. This is just a generic uh, NIV commentary says this. With that in mind, let's listen now to what Rick Warren told the Assemblies of God this particular passage was all about and what it means. Now, I want to read a quick scripture to you. And if you have a Bible, uh, open to Isaiah chapter 49, because I want to just share one very quick word on how do you deal with discouragement in the ministry. In Isaiah 49, we have Isaiah's discouragement uh, uh, problem. And it says this. In, in Isaiah- really? Uh, no, that, actually, Isaiah 49 is not at all about uh, Isaiah's dis- ministry discouragement problem. This is a prophecy about Jesus. Isaiah 49, he says, listen to me, you islands, you islands. He's he's talking internationally. Listen to me, you islands, hear me, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. And from my birth, he has made me mention of his, my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. And in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Now, Isaiah first begins by saying, God created me. God called me into ministry. God equipped me for ministry. God has gifted me for ministry. And God has promised to use me for his glory. Uh, Actually, no, Isaiah 49 is all about Jesus, the servant, This is one of the servant songs of Isaiah. Now, he says all of that. In spite of that, Isaiah has a pity party, and he's discouraged. And he says in verse 4, but, and that's a big but, and we all have our buts, okay? Some buts are bigger than others. (laughs) I always think your butt's bigger than my butt, uh, but because I can see yours, but not mine. But I said... Oh, you are with me. Okay, God bless you. You are awake. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. There is an epidemic of discouragement among pastors and church staff today in the world. And I hear people all the time saying, I'm beating my head against the wall and nothing's happening. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. I have labored to no purpose. They're not purpose driven. I have not done anything of significance. Now, it's interesting to me, God's antidote to Isaiah's discouragement in ministry. Now, follow me. Again, Isaiah says, I was called by God of ministry to ministry. I was created for ministry. I was gifted. This isn't Isaiah talking about himself. This is a prophecy of Isaiah regarding Jesus. Isn't it weird? I mean, one of the, I think, a correct description of the Christianity, it's in parentheses here, uh, that uh, Rick Warren has come up with, is uh, it's Christless. I mean, here is a direct prophecy about Jesus, the servant. This is one of the servant songs of Isaiah. And uh, when you read a, just good commentaries on this, they point you to the fact that this is all about Jesus and his ministry. 
And, well, Rick Warren, well, no, 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 Jesus isn't important. No, no, no. Let's talk about ourselves. For ministry, I was skilled for ministry, and God has plan- uh, promised to bless me in ministry. But he says, all my ministry is labored to no purpose. I don't see the fruit. I don't see the result. I have labored. My strength is in vain and for nothing. Now, God's answer to Isaiah's discouragement is not, now, now, Isaiah, you just need a little vacation. You deserve a break today. You know, come on in and have some cookies and warm milk. You know, just take it easy. No, no. Do you know what God says the problem with Isaiah is in his discouragement? He says, Isaiah, your vision is not big enough. I mean, unbelievable. This is just so breathtaking. I I don't think Rick Warren is capable of actually opening up God's word and correctly handling it at all because he keeps getting in the way. He thinks it's all about him. The scriptures are about Christ, and this passage in particular is about Christ. It's a prophecy about Jesus. And look what Rick Warren has done with this thing. Oh, God's saying to poor discouraged Isaiah, you just don't have a big enough vision. Unbelievable. I mean, the only word that can come that actually comes to mind here is satanic. I mean, how do you take a prophecy about Jesus and turn it into something about you? I mean, seriously. I mean, this I feel like I'm listening to the spirit of Antichrist because we've we've expunged Jesus from this prophecy about Jesus. That that's Satan's work to erase Jesus. And well, apparently we've done that. He says, Isaiah, your vision is not big enough. Not that your vision is too big and you're discouraged, but your vision is too small, and that is why you're discouraged. And here's what he says. And now the Lord says to me, he who formed me in the womb to be a servant. In verse 6, he says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant just to restore the tribes of Jacob, just to bring back those of Israel that I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the end of the earth. You know, this verse is more proof that this is about Jesus. By the way, this passage talking about God bringing his salvation to the end of the earth and not just to the, uh, the, the, the tribes of Israel. Let me read it again. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of, of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. By the way, there's a cross-reference to this verse. And the cross-reference is actually found in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. Now, let me read the story to you so that you can hear it in context. Um, and this is, uh, this is right after Jesus' birth. Listen to what happens in the temple when Jesus is brought uh, you know, for circumcision and purification. Here's what it says. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that's Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male 
who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light to reveal you to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. A light to reveal you to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Let me again read Isaiah chapter 49, 6. Is it too light a thing? It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This passage is about Jesus, and Rick Warren is so myopic and so much of a false teacher and a, and a false prophet and a man who is not rightly handling God's word. I, he's not capable of it. He's completely missing the fact that this passage is about Jesus and it's not about Isaiah at all as a result of it. He's making just the worst conclusions from this. He's not rightly handling God's word. God says, Isaiah, the reason why you're discouraged is your vision has shrunk to simply your community. You think that I've called you just to reach your people, your community, your state, your nation. But Isaiah, you got it all wrong. I did not call you simply to reach your people, your kind of people, your state, your community, your nation. The, I didn't call you just to be a prophet of, the, of Israel. That's what you are. But I have called you to be a prophet to all the nations, to make you a light to the Gentile. Message paraphrase says, so that my salvation goes global. And here's my challenge to you. Your church must be both local and global. Every church must have bifocal vision. If you only care about your community, you will not have the anointing of God on your life. Wow, that, that passage doesn't say that at all. And there is no passage in the Bible that says if you don't have bifocal vision, you will not have the anointing of God in your life. That's a flat-out lie. That's an assertion that cannot be backed up with a single passage of Scripture. Unbelievable. And this is what happens when you take God's Word and you twist it and mangle it and distort it and make it all about you when it's all about Jesus. I mean, this is a perfect example of doing that. A passage that is clearly a prophecy about Jesus, and now Rick Warren has twisted it into, well, this is saying that you have to have bifocal vision, and if you don't, then God's anointing isn't going to be on your life. That's just a flat-out abomination. That's blasphemy. That's taking God's name in vain, and that's exactly what it means to do that. Unbelievable. All right, we are up on our 
first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Thanks for calling Saddleback Customer Service. This is Josh. How can I help you today? Yes, I would like to return the Jesus I received from you. I heard there was a 60-day return policy. Yes, sir, there is. But can I ask you why you want to return Jesus? Well, I was told if I received Jesus, he'd fix all my problems. And quite honestly, I'm not satisfied with this Jesus. Sir, what is your Jesus doing right now? Nothing. He just sits there. Have you taken time to feed your Jesus? Well, I went to church for the preaching, but nothing has happened. Sir, if you read the fine print on the warranty, you'll see that you are responsible for feeding, not the church or the pastor. Oh. Well, can I exchange this Jesus for another? Sir, what kind of Jesus are you looking for? I need the Jesus that forgives sins. You know, changes your life on the inside, helps you overcome the sins of the flesh, never leaves me nor forsakes me, and will take me to heaven when I die. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. We don't stock that Jesus here. You'll have to go somewhere else. To have that Jesus. Well, I guess I'll just stick with the one I got since I already opened the box. Wonderful, sir. Can I interest you in getting Jesus for your friends and family? Why would I do that? Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says, Join Our Crew. 
You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Join our crew today and thank you for your support. All right, we're back. Warning, the Rick Warrenized version of Christianity isn't Christianity. Yeah, when you can take passages about Jesus and whitewash him out of it, that's not Christianity. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, and we truly depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew, and when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith, and that's a monthly contribution, by the way. And, um, and uh, of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038, or click on the donate button. Yeah, I'm confusing myself at the moment. <sighs> yeah, it just absolutely just is mind-boggling, mind-boggling that anybody would say that Rick Warren is a Christian pastor when he takes a passage about Jesus and turns it into something completely different. I mean, that's just breathtaking, absolutely breathtaking and uh, just uh, aggravating making. Anyway, talking about somebody who can take things about Jesus and make it about themselves, um, well, let me uh, introduce our new uh, Joel Osteen update music. Brush ya, brush ya, brush ya. Here's the new Ipana with a brand new flavor. It's dandy for your teeth. Ipana knocks out decay germs best of all eating brands. Brush ya, brush ya, brush ya. Get the new Ipana. Brush ya, brush ya, brush ya. Knock out decay germs best. Best, best. You sure are right. Ipana for your teeth. Yeah, that's right. Joel Osteen for your teeth. Anyway, the uh, headline reads, Joel Osteen inspires thousands in Chicago. Next stop, Washington, D.C. This is by Anugram, Anugra Kamur, who is a Christian Post contributor. Joel Osteen, the pastor of a megachurch in Houston, drew about 37,000 people to a Chicago ballpark for America's Night of Hope. Um, he announced that Washington, D.C. would be the next city for the annual event taking place in April of 2012, infusing hope amid global economic fears that followed the downgrading of America's credit rating. And the, pre- the preceding night, the 48-year-old pastor proclaimed that a resurrection God was capable of breathing new life, as quoted by the Chicago Sun-Times on Sunday. Joel Osteen's Facebook page uh, messages poured in from hundreds of participants from around the world who seemed charged with fresh enthusiasm after the event at U.S. Cellular Field, the home of the Chicago White Sox. Keep bringing hope to the people, cities, and nations, wrote one Madeira Porter. I'm a better person each and every day because of you, said Kathleen Hennessy. Um, I, quote, I couldn't help but feel uplifted as we walked out of there, wrote another participant, Mike Donnelly. 
Osteen, the pastor of Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, the largest church in America, told the audience, you wouldn't be alive unless God had another victory in store for you. You need to get ready because Jubilee is on the way amid rounds of applause and cheers. And I'm going to pause there for a second. Um, there's a, there's a huge difference between now and uh, what's happened in the past when – uh, the United States has experienced major cataclysmic catastrophes. In times past, people were biblically literate enough to know that maybe, just maybe, what they were experiencing was God's judgments. And uh, people went to churches in times like this, um, confessing their sins, confessing their wickedness, and um, praying for God's mercy and forgiveness. Instead of hearing the need for America to repent of her sins and wickedness and for Americans to be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ, instead we're, we've got, well, this slick, shiny-toothed, slick-haired guys telling us, oh, the next blessing from God is just around the corner. My question is, what if the reason why we're having such a downgrade in the economy is is because of America's wickedness, that this, this, these are the fruits of our sin collectively as a nation? Rather than being presumptuous and saying, oh, God's next big blessing is just around the corner, maybe it's time for us to stop and think for a second that maybe, just maybe... um. Americans need to repent, repent of their false religion, repent of their materialism, consumerism, and other things, and be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. Maybe, just maybe, everything that's happening is a result of, the, of just the collective wickedness of, uh, of America and what she's become. But we've got Joel Osteen basically preaching to itch, well, scratch itching ears and uh, and tell everybody that God's big favor is just around the corner. That's what you need. Um, yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, let me continue with this story. Osteen, who has written several books, is also a televangelist who reaches millions of viewers around the world through his television ministry. He's got such a warm, positive message. It's infectious. The Chicago Times quoted a 29-year-old participant, Mike Jasinski of Ingleside, saying, you can't help smiling when he starts talking. Jasinski, who rediscovered his faith during Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, said that he had been watching Osteen's television programs for years, and seeing him Saturday was a reminder of how faith changed his life. Osteen's wife, Victoria, also spoke at the gathering. She warned them against what this world, this economy would like them to believe I can't that we're that we're hopeless, uh, we're 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 helpless, and that our hands are tied. But we're going to celebrate the I can. She said, "Next year, Joel Joel and Victoria will take the America's Night of Hope, an annual event, also known as a Night of Hope, to Washington D.C. Tens of thousands from across the nation are expected to gather at the state of the art Washington Nationals Park on uh, April twenty eighth. And Joel Osteen Ministries said in a statement Sunday, we are pleased to welcome pastors Joel and Victoria Osteen and America's Night of Hope to the District of Columbia next April. The statement quoted D.C. Mayor Vincent C. Gray as saying, I'm thankful that they chose Washington over other options to host this major event. And I pray not only that many will find hope and unity in the message they hear there, 
but that the visitors will also experience the many joys of springtime in our nation's beautiful capital city. That's right. They're looking forward to the influx of money coming into Washington, D.C. for hoping um, for hosting this night of hope. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. I, I'm so glad that that Victoria Osteen, you know, br- so bravely exemplified the I can attitude that God is apparently looking for so that he can give us a big blessing. Yeah. Where's Jesus again? Where's repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus name? I'm sorry. The Osteens preach a false religion. It masquerades as Christianity, but it isn't Christianity. It's something completely different. And uh, the fact that there are so many people in the United States who think that this is Christianity is not only frightening and depressing, it's, um, it's, it's just absolutely mind-boggling that this is what has become of the church. But this is what happens when people invent their own Christianities. And that's exactly what the Osteens have done. They've invented their own Christianity that isn't even remotely or... Um, well, doesn't really resemble historic Christianity at all. And talking about inventing your own Christianity, uh, here's a, a news story from the BBC called Holland's Religious Laboratory. Holland's Religious Laboratory. Uh, here, listen in. This kind of speaks for itself. At first glance, it seems extraordinary that the imposing figure in black robes and clerical collar presiding over the Sunday service doesn't believe in the traditional God of Christianity. But the Reverend Klaus Hendricks's doubt is not unique. Research suggests that one in six clergy in the Dutch Protestant church are either agnostic or atheist. The service at the Exodus Church in Hurricane includes the Lord's Prayer, hymns and readings. But Mr. Hendrickson tells his congregation that God doesn't exist as a supernatural being. When it happens, it happens down to earth, between you and me, between people. That's where God can happen. God is not a being at all. So uh, we're reinventing a Christianity... Where God doesn't even exist, he's just, uh, uh, whatever. Can happen. God is not a being at all. It's a word or human experience. Well, here in the coffee session after that service, people are buzzing with what Klaus Hendrickson had to say. It really was an extraordinary event. It was a well-attended service in a mainstream church. And we had a minister talking about the Bible's account of Jesus as if it were a mythological story about a man who might or really might not have existed. For me, it's very freeing from the normal views because he is uh, using the Bible in a metaphorical way. Here you can believe what you want to believe for yourself. Okay, just <laughs> listen to these people. Here, oh wow, this is really freeing. You can believe what you want to believe for yourself. Now, it's breathtaking when you hear it spoken of so directly. It's like, whoa, why, what is going on here? But see, this is exactly what Joel Osteen does. This is exactly what Rick Warren does. They just don't speak about it as openly as this other guy. They've created their own Christianities. They treat the Bible stories as metaphorical or allegorical that in such a way they can twist it to mean whatever they want it to mean. It doesn't need to mean what it says that it says. That's what Rick Warren did with Isaiah 49. That's what, Rick, uh, that's what Joel Osteen does with his, his message of you can have your best life now. 
You see, these are the, the, the and remember I played uh, during Eric Dykstra's thing. One of these things is not like the other, the old Sesame Street song. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things is not the same. Anyway, in this particular case, um, what this guy in uh, in Holland is doing is exactly the same thing as what Rick Warren has done. is is exactly the same thing as what Joel Osteen has done. Just invented his their own religion, and they say it's freeing. Oh, I'm free from the shackles of of biblical doctrine and and this idea that God created the world in six days, spoken into existence. That there was this, these people called Adam and Eve who plunged us into sin, and that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, uh, who who's come to earth to live a perfect life, uh, sinless under the law, and that he's propitiated the wrath of God by his shed blood on the cross. Oh, we can get rid of all of that, the idea of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and that God even exists. Oh, that we can get rid of that too. And uh, instead, all we've got left is this invented religion where we can still, you know, we still come together. We say the Lord's Prayer and we sing hymns. And the pastor dresses up, you know, in his clericals, and we all play, uh, we play Christianity, but it's it's really their own invented religion. Frightening, isn't it? Other churches are having to market themselves to a free-thinking public. At an open evening in Amsterdam's red light district, the old church holds a speed dating session. At a signal, people move from table to table. Speed dating in the red light district? Of strangers. Professor Jaime Stoffels of the Free University in Amsterdam says it's in such concepts of love that people base their vague ideas of religion. We call it somethingism. People believe in something between heaven and earth. But to call it God and, and even think of a personal God is for the majority of the Dutch population is, is a, a bridge too far. Faced with a Dutch public no longer prepared to believe traditional church teaching about God and an afterlife, some progressive groups seem to be virtually reinventing Christianity. They're determined that the Netherlands, rather than be a graveyard for Christianity, should be its laboratory, experimenting with radical new ways of understanding the faith. Stroom West is one church's experiment. In an Amsterdam theatre, young people write on plates the names of those things which prevent Earth from being heaven. Things such as cancer, war and hunger. Then they destroy them symbolically. The new Christianity is already developing its own ritual. New Christianity. Forberg, who helps run Stroom West, says the group focuses on people's personal search for God, not on the church's traditional answers. You can't preach heaven in the same way 2,000 years ago as today. It means something different. No, it's and the we same. Have to think again what, what it is. I mean, we can use the same words, but say something totally different. Wow. Although groups such as Stroom are prepared to question even whether Jesus was the Son of God, a large swathe of Holland lives according to strict Christian orthodoxy. The Dutch Bible Belt includes the town of Staphorst, where a bylaw prohibits swearing. Its deputy mayor, Sietse de Jong, accuses progressive groups of trying to change Christianity to fit current social norms. When we get people into the church by throwing Jesus Christ out of the church, we lose the core of Christianity. That's right. Then we are not reforming the institutions, the attitudes, but the core of our message. 
Yep. At the old church open evening in Amsterdam, visitors stand entranced as a small choir sings the Magnificat. But despite the beauty of their tradition, churches are increasingly ready to work with anyone who believes in something. They believe that only through adaptation can their religion survive. This is a lie of the devil. It's an absolute lie of the devil that Christianity cannot survive unless it adapts. And somehow you can turn, you just come up with your own religious laboratory and invent your own Christianity to make it conducive to a particular culture. Again, but here's the deal. This is exactly what Rick Warren has done. This is exactly what Joe Osteen has done. They just haven't, they're just not honest enough to say it this outspokenly. Unbelievable. Just unbelievable. This un so breathtakingly bad. Wow. Yeah, if you again this uh this uh guy, this uh, Dutch reform, you know, this Dutch guy, he, you know, he did another interview with the BBC. Let me play that interview for you too. You don't have to believe that Jesus physically resurrected. There's an other way of looking at it. And uh the the words life and death uh, can also have different meanings than what we say that it means in 2011. Yeah, notice the postmodern way in which he's just deconstructing words. Back. Yeah. But you say not only that Jesus wasn't necessarily physically resurrected, in fact, you say he wasn't physically resurrected, you say he might not have existed. We only have a story, a mythological account of his life. Yes. Yeah, then why are we finding the graves? You know, we found the grave of one of his disciples. I mean, the, his existence. It was Philip, by the way. For me, it's not relevant. I mean, if you take, for instance, uh, Socrates or uh, Dionysus, a Greek god, uh, they both have a lot to tell me. I'm sure they never existed. For Christians, that's no point. Right? Of course, Dionysus never existed. But Jesus is the exception. He did exist. Why? Because, so I say, his existence is not relevant because the message... Yeah, or what the story about Jesus has to tell me has nothing to do with his physical existence. But it's a central feature of Christianity that Jesus did exist, that he was the Son of God, yeah. and that he was resurrected from the dead because yeah. he was the Son of God, yeah. and that that process, his death on the cross, was designed specifically by God to liberate everyone from their sinfulness. Yeah, right. That's the central tenet of Christianity. Yes. That's right. And we pray in the in the well, we say in the creed, and he suffered under Pontius Pilate. This took place in history. And you're saying that's not necessarily that's, true. That's correct. It's a misunderstanding of what Paul said. Yeah. yeah, total misunderstanding. I'm sure you're the one who's doing the misunderstanding, sir. That makes you no longer a Christian, surely. That's correct. He's not a Christian. Well, I don't, if you ask me, are you a Christian? I say, well, I am a reverend in the Christian church, so I cannot say I'm not Christian. But the, the Christian code is for me too narrow. Uh, and, uh, I He's a minister in a, in a Christian church, but the Christian cult is just too narrow of a thing for him. Throw him out. Christian because I'm in a Western European uh, tradition and culture, but uh, it doesn't feel that way because my understanding of the word God is that that is one word of saying things or expressing experiences for which you... Yeah, notice that he apparently is the decider of what words mean.
also can use other words, like for instance, Allah. If in the future your model of Christianity that we've talked about were to survive and be successful... Then biblical Christianity would cease to exist wherever this was the reigning Christianity. Would it show that there is a usefulness or that Christianity could have a usefulness disconnected from God? I mean, even now... No, 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 no. Don't misunderstand me. That, that uh, For me, the word God is, is important. The only thing is that, uh, that it is not, it's not a being, uh, not, uh, not an existing being. Um, uh, it's, it, when it happens... It's it, important. It got, the word God is really important as long as God doesn't actually exist. Right. It happens down to earth between you and me, between people. That's where God can happen. And is God a supernatural being? No, God is not a being at all. Is God a supernatural thing? No, God is not a thing at all. What is God? It's a word for experience, or human experience. This guy is truly a postmodern emergent. I'm sure he would do... I'm surprised Tony Jones and Doug Padgett don't fly him out and have him speak to their cohort. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So there you go. I mean, apparently in uh, in in uh, Holland, you can just make up your own Christianity, and you can be you can deny the existence of God and Jesus Christ just flat out, right up there, and uh, and uh, you can still maintain your post as a so-called Christian pastor. But again, I point out the fact that this, I mean, as breathtakingly bad as this as this is, um, you know, the one thing that this guy is at least that uh, Rick Warren and Joel Osteen are not, is honest. He's at least honest enough to say what he's doing. Um, Rick Warren and Joel Osteen have done the same thing. They've crafted their own Christianities in their own laboratories um, and, and you know, allegorize and metaphoricalize uh, God's word and turn it into a wax nose to mean whatever they want it to mean. Um, and their form of Christianity is their own form. But they're just not honest enough to say it. that's what they've done. This guy, at least he's honest enough to admit it. That's all I can say. All right, we are up on our uh, second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me my friends on fa- front of Facebook. is facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sermon review. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio.
Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Apparently our theme today is invented Christianities. Um, Who cares what the Bible actually says or what God really revealed? You can just make up your own stuff. Let's cue up the uh, sermon review music. You will need tinfoil, pyramid hat, duct tape, bendy straws, all of that for this one. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review them all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via C3 Exchange, Spring Lake, Michigan, that is where Ian Lawton holds court. He's invented his own Christianity because he's spiritual and not religious. And he invited for this sermon a gal by the name of Rabbi Shava Bachli to uh, come and share her mystical spiritual insights with the folks there at C3 Exchange. By the way, C3 Exchange started off as a Christian church. Their pastor jettisoned the concept of the authority of God's word and drifted hard into liberalism and then it led to them calling Ian Lawton to be their quote pastor and this is what this is the logical outcome doctrinally of those who embrace postmodern liberalism what you're going to hear is postmodern liberal uh, theology emergent theology on full display it's mysticism and universalism and just crazy, crazy stuff. It sounds more like the New Age than it does um, anything that's even remotely Christian. And this is the fate of churches that go this way, that tolerate this kind of stuff, that rather than rebuke people for false doctrine, rather than defrocking pastors who drift away from what the Bible teaches who drift away from the authority of Scripture, this is where they end up. This is the logical outcome of it. 
Anyway, I'm going to stop right there. So here, without any further ado, is Rabbi Shavach Bachli and uh, her sermon that she delivered at C3 Exchange entitled The God Whisper. Here we go. You are the one for this I pray that I may have the strength to be alone. To yes, she does sing to start off the sermon. To see the to stand among the trees and all the living things, that I may stand alone and offer prayers and talk to you. You are the one to whom I do belong, and I'll sing my soul, I'll sing my soul to you. And give you all that's in my heart. May all the foliage of the fields, all grasses, trees, and plants, awaken at my coming, this I pray, and send their life into my words of prayer. So that my speech, my thoughts, and my prayers will be made whole through the spirit of all living things. And we know that everything is one because we know that everything is you. You are the one for this I pray. I ask you, God, to hear. Notice she's saying, we know that everything is you. This is pantheism or panentheism on display here. No distinction between creator and creation. God is everything. My words that pour out from my heart, I stand before you. I like water lift my hands to you in prayer. And grant me strength, and grant me strength to be alone. You are the one to whom I do belong. And I'll sing my soul, I'll sing my soul to you. And give you all that's in my heart. The great rabbi Zusha of Hanapoli said that when he got to heaven, he would not be asked by the heavenly hosts, Zusha, why were you not more like Moses, our teacher? Zusha, why couldn't you be more like Abraham, our father? No, he said, when I get to the heavenly gates, they will turn to me and they will say, Zusha, why couldn't you be more like Zusha? That sentence is complete and utter nonsense. Yeah, by the way, friends don't let friends go emergent mystical uh, because this it fries your brain so you can't think anymore. A monk and a disciple were once sitting on the bank of the Ganges River when a scorpion happened by and fell into the water and began to drown. The monk 
reached into the water to pull the scorpion out and put it back on the bank. And as he did so, the scorpion stung his hand. And again, the two sat and the scorpion, once again walking along the bank, fell into the water and began to drown. And the monk again reached in to pull the scorpion out and once again it stung his hand. A third time, the scorpion walking along the bank fell into the water. The monk reached in and it stung his hand as he placed it back on the land. Finally, the disciple could stand it no longer, and he said, Brother, I don't understand it. You keep pulling that scorpion out of the water, and you know that it's going to sting your hand. And the monk said, Yes, I know the scorpion is going to sting my hand. Its dharma is to sting, but my dharma is to save. Friends, for us, the question of this morning is how do we as people who wish to live a holy life, who wish to uncover our dharma, who wish to become... Again, I got to reiterate this. This C3 exchange used to be a Christian church, complete with a cross. So now we've got a woman telling stories, a, a, a female rabbi telling stories about dharma and the Ganges River and monks and stuff like that in a place where Jesus Christ used to be proclaimed and repentance and the forgiveness of sins preached. Most fully ourselves. How do we hear and heed the whisper of God that is meant for us? We must. How do we hear and heed the whisper of God that's meant for us? I don't need God's whispers. I've got the Bible. It's God's word. You ever read it? Let's begin a little bit before that question with the time before in the beginning. The, eight, the 11th century rabbi Naphtali Baharach by the way, an ancestor of um, Bert Bacharach. That's how his name was said before it was Bacharach. Bachar, Naftali Bacharach, in the 11th century, a great mystic, wrote a song that actually his descendant, Bert Bacharach, would be very happy with. And in the text, what he said was, the world could only be created by the virtue of the action of righteous people. Now, how can that be? The world could only be created by something that didn't exist yet. And the 11th century mystic says this, that God sat in contemplative meditation and sat with all of the... So God sat in contemplative meditation... Hmm, sounds to me like the monk was projecting his spirituality onto God. Doesn't that sound like that to you? The good deeds that all of those future people were going to do, and this act of thinking about all the good things you were going to do was enough to actualize the thought. God, says the 11th century text, drew forth light from within itself and delighted itself with the thought of holy people like you. This joy engendered an undulation, created delight, and in the bliss of of contemplating the righteous, 
that's you. So apparently you can be completely righteous without Christ. Who knew? Of imagining holy people, the power to create was born. So God sitting in contemplation and recognizing all of the good that you would do. Yeah, notice in, in, in mysticism, we don't have a sin problem. All of us are already righteous. We're already good people. This brought God so much delight that it is out of the ground of that being of delight that the process of in the beginning began. The underlying pulse of creation is the delight of the Holy One in us. Yeah, apparently the Holy One dwells in each and every one of us. Wow. And so when we think about listening for the voice of God in our lives, this is often called in English, listening for the will of God. But this word that is translated as will, if you trace it back from the backward chain of translation from the English Bibles that we have now through the German going backward to the Latin, to the Greek, and to the Hebrew... The word that is used there in the text is the word ratzon. Can you say that, ratzon? Okay, plant that word in your heart. Because in the Hebrew, in the original language, that word does not mean will of God. That word means delight. What God desires in the deepest depths of God's heart And so what is important for us in listening for the voice of God in our lives is not that there is some secret plan, and if only we were smart enough, we could understand what God wanted for us, what God wanted for our families, and and if only we get the right key to fit into that lock, then all of it will be figured out. No, that is not the case at all. There is not, according to this tradition, only one way. Only one plan, only one way for you to be in full alignment with the divine. That's right. Even though Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except for through me, according to this, quote, tradition. Sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? I mean, because she follows a tradition, a faith tradition. It's a mythology. It's a tradition of men. It's not what's revealed in God's word. But according to this tradition, there's not just one way. There's many different ways. And God doesn't want you to find his will. He wants you to find his delight. Instead, what this has to do with is discerning those things that create shared delight. There is no secret plan that you discern only if you get lucky. In fact, the question of listening for God's voice is to listen into your own heart. And f- yeah, don't listen to don't listen to God's word because the Bible says that the heart of man is deceitful and wicked, and who can know it? No, 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 no. Don't listen to that. Don't listen to God's word, the Bible. No, no, no. Listen for the word. Listen for God's word inside of your heart. Hmm. Find that place of delight. So think of some times when you have felt delighted recently. I hope you have some. Can you think of a time when you felt delighted? My mom called me yesterday when I was on my way here to tell me she got engaged. 
I'm absolutely delighted. My aunt and uncle called me last week to tell us that they have decided, along with my cousins and my cousins' children, to take their vacation in Sutton's Bay so that they can come and see us. You can come too. (laughs) Can you think of a time when you felt delight? That is what it means to live in alignment with the Ratzon of God. And you will know that you are doing it because the Ratzon of God will always exhibit the characteristics of love, compassion, goodness, generosity, joy, and expansion that were inherent in that initial impetus of creation. The moment that God felt such delight in you that it set this whole story in motion. And God's delight often reveals itself to us in a sacred whisper. What the text calls a bat kol. Okay, by the way, um, the, the, talking about the bat kol, this is exactly what Phyllis Tickle preached on at Mars Hill Bible Church. Yeah, we reviewed this. In fact, look up um, uh, yeah, on, in the Fighting for the Faith archives. I reviewed a sermon where Phyllis Tickle talks about the bat kol, and she's preaching about it at Mars Hill Bible Church. This spirituality that you're hearing This is the same stuff that's going on in emergent circles. This is the same spirituality that's promoted and taught by Rob Bell and his co-pastor Shane uh, Shane Hips. Yeah, I mean this this is crazy stuff. This isn't biblical Christianity, though. This is something completely different. It literally means the daughter of a voice, and one of our teachers says that. Isn't it weird though that uh, Bill Hybels is teaching us to hear whispers from God too? Weird, don't you think? That the daughter of the voice is an echo. Within both the Jewish and Christian traditions, he says, the botkol refers to the heavenly voice that reveals divine messages and intention to us. The instruction to listen to God's voice is repeated over and over again in our scriptures. The assumption is that the botkol, an echo of the divine voice, is in fact accessible and is always whispering to us the guidance, truth, and wisdom that we yearn for in our lives. Not God's word, but the inner voice, the bot kol, the feminine voice of God. Hmm. This still, small voice that our text referred to from the book of Kings is calling to us at every moment. And sacred listening, says our teacher, is the skill of sensing receiving and hearing this divine whisper in our hearts. And our sacred task is to pay attention, to listen, to trust in, and to respond to that whisper. So how do... Boy, listen to this lady. Puts a whole new spin on, uh, on Bill Hybel's book, Whispers, doesn't it? How do we do that? A story is told of the 18th century Jewish saint, mystic, and teacher, the seer of Lublin. And he was called the seer because he had such insight. When he was very young, maybe seven or eight years old, he would daily go out into the forest alone. 
Now, his father was a very tolerant and an understanding person, and he didn't want to interfere with his little son's excursions, but he was concerned because he knew that being out alone in the forest could be dangerous. So one day he took his son aside and he said, I know this, that every day you go off into the forest, and I won't forbid you to go there, but I want you to know that I'm concerned for you, and I wonder, why is it that you go there? What is it that you do? And the seven-year-old seer of Lublin said, I go into the forest to find God. His father was deeply moved. He said, that is so beautiful, and I'm so pleased to hear that you're doing that. But don't you know that God is the same everywhere? And the seer of Lublin said, yes, I know that God is the same everywhere, but I am not. God is the same everywhere, but it is in moments of a particular type of receptivity that we are more apt to hear God's whisper. So listening for the voice of God, listening for that sound of the echo of delight, means putting ourselves into the place of listening. It means not egoing. It means putting ourselves into a receiving posture, thinking of ourselves more as vessel or channel or dwelling place. By the way, this, I mean, this is a perfect example of why the scriptures warn us that the devil masquerades as an angel of light. Doesn't this sound so spiritual? Doesn't this sound so loving and so pious? And I'm going into nature to hear the voice of God. You're hearing the voice of Satan masquerading as an angel of light. In fact, one of the great mystical texts of the 19th century says that the purpose of the creation of every single person and the purpose of creation of all of the worlds is so that we might make ourselves into a dwelling place for God in this world. And yet the Bible doesn't teach any of that. It says that we are sinful by nature and at war with God and that Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross makes it possible to be brought to repentance and the forgiveness of our sins so that then we can have the Holy Spirit dwell within us, but not apart from Christ and his shed blood. Apparently in this religion, you're already good and you can make yourself into the dwelling place of God all by your lonesome all by virtue of your own righteousness. So three interwoven qualities that will help with this, Um, and I don't have any of them, so I'm speaking completely academically here. (laughs) The first is the quality of equanimity. And what this means is cultivating a non-reactive quality. You know, the beauty of our minds is that it's very quick at reacting to things and formulating things and putting things into neat categories. But if you want to listen for the... You know, like categories such as truth and error. Now, isn't it interesting that Satan masquerading as an angel of light, that the first thing that's got to go, you got to stop reacting and putting things into categories. Yeah, no, 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 no. True spirituality is equanimity. 
where you can not react against things. Stop saying things like that's wrong or that's right. No, no, no. You, true spirituality is where you can, you can embrace the truth that's in everything. The voice of God, one of the qualities that's very important is to learn to sit with a non-reactive quality and to remember that we cannot always know. It's about cultivating a steadiness of heart. Some teachers call this some acceptance. Meeting those moments of quiet encounter with a readiness, a receptivity, and acceptance. The second quality is patience. And as we said this morning in our Bible study, this is a very countercultural notion now. When so much of our lives is lived six inches from our face with a device in front of us going as quickly and immediately as we can, Patience is a countercultural value. Cultivating the ability and the courage to wait. Cultivating the ability not to feel we can control every single aspect of our experience. So equanimity, patience, and the third quality, humility. Now in my tradition, humility has a very specific definition It means knowing how much space to take up. It doesn't mean you turn yourself into a doormat. Humility means there are times when you are meant to be big. But there are also times when it's important to allow others to have that space. And the wisdom of knowing how much space to take up is the the definition of the quality of humility in my tradition because it implies an awareness of knowing that it's not all always about you or me, but sometimes it's about each other. The other dimension of the definition of humility that's important in listening for the voice of God is this. In Judaism, humility is deeply tied to the teaching that we always have something to learn from everyone. No one is beneath us. No one is so below us. No one is so different from us that we cannot learn from them. You know, I I had the privilege of sitting right up here in the front row when the kids were up here singing. And they're very little people. But in that moment, our job was not to be the adult authorities in the room in their lives, but to receive from them and to recognize that these little people had a lot to remind us about how to be in the world. So equanimity, patience, and humility. Now there are times when the whisper of God comes in a very direct way, and I want to close this morning by sharing with you one utterance of the bot coal that I had the privilege to be on the receiving end of not so long ago. So she's going to share with all of them a direct experience of hearing the whisper of God. Now, here's a question I have for you. This is a woman who rejects Jesus Christ as the Messiah. She does not believe that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, that he died and rose again for our sins and justification. But she believes that uh, she can experience hearing whispers from God. Hmm. Well, if she's hearing whispers from God, um, then truth doesn't mean anything to God at all. 
at all. And Jesus was a complete liar because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except for through me. So who is this woman hearing from? Is she hearing from the true God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or a deceiving spirit? We continue. As you know um, from my previous visits, I spend a great deal of time um, engaging in Buddhist meditation. It's a practice that I found very helpful in my... Yeah, she engages in Buddhist meditation. Hmm. My life as a rabbi. Wow, that's kind of ironic. <laughs> Is it me? Does that seem ironic? Um, but that I also spend a lot of time at a Catholic monastery in Louisville, Kentucky. So this is a gal who, like, um, well, <laughs> some other seeker-driven guys, uh, Pete Scazzaro comes to mind, spends time every year in a Roman Catholic monastery. Hmm, isn't it weird that the folks who are engaging all, in all of this mysticism are coming to the same conclusions? So there I was with my beautiful rabbinic prayer shawl on, sitting and engaging in Buddhist meditation in the chapel of a Catholic monastery. <laughs> Sounds like the beginning of a joke, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It is a joke, too. It's, this is not the truth. This is a complete lie being pawned off as if it were the truth. So a rabbi walks into a monastery. <laughs> and they do a particular practice at this monastery that's a daily meditation where they take the, the sacred host, the, the, the a large wafer that would be used for the, the Catholic communion ritual, and it's put into a very beautiful holder called a monstrance. So it stands upright, and it's very elaborate and gorgeous. And they bring it out, and they put this upright communion wafer, this Eucharist, this blessed wafer, onto the altar table. And you simply sit in silence for an hour doing a visual meditation. Now, granted, I come from a very different tradition, so for me, I tried to put myself in the place that the other people in the room who were very few, and the monks uh, would look at, the, look at this symbol, and they are attempting to sit in the presence of Christ. That's the meaning for them. For me, I, I took it a little differently since my tradition is different, and I said, this is a time to, to sit with people who wish to see God. So while I was sitting there, this is what came through, and I just want to close by sharing it. Now, she's going to be sharing verbatim what apparently the whisper of God was in her heart, the, the feminine spirit of God, the bot coal speaking directly to her, as she actually took this down as a, you know, a verbatim utterance of God. Um, because perhaps some of it is also meant for you. So the bot coal said to me this, it is not that you need to see me, but that you must come to see the world through my eyes. These flowers on the altar are as much my children as Jesus, said the Batkol. These are my... So apparently, I mean, flowers are every bit as much the children of God as Jesus is the Son of God. You're hearing a demon speaking at this point. These are the words of a demon. This is, these are not the words of God, the Holy Spirit, at all. My lights, this whole world, learn to see it as I see it. You are my eyes, you are my heart, you are my hands. 
Wake up and see this is your calling. It will take courage seeing the world through sacred eyes. This is the real ritual. And two, remember that this ritual is not so much meant for you to see me as it is for me to see you and you to know it. I see you in all of your triumph and in your imperfection. It is you who are exposed to me so that you can know that even with what you see as your flaws, I see you and I love you. The challenge is not to contract, but to stay broader, open awareness, to see things through God's eyes in their true form as expressions of God. Suffering, too, is my suffering. The exile of the Shekhinah, the divine she who dwells within. The the, the divine she who dwells within. So we're with this. I mean, here we got Satan masquerading as as God in drag. Apparently, the the goddess, the divine goddess that dwells within you. Unbelievable. Whenever you see suffering, any opportunity to bless any place that can grow in love and the greatest good for all, anything you see now with your eyes is your ministry in the world. Nothing you see, if you see it, is too large or too small to receive your blessing, rectification, and healing. The only spiritual practice is to stay open and expanded, to keep the eye in perspective. Everyone you see, see through my eyes, the eyes of love, not the eyes of judgment, but the eyes of love. Allow spirit to fill you. See the world as spirit sees us. Go to the places of loneliness and pain as the prayer says, lead me to the places of loneliness and pain. May your words shine in my mouth. May I trust that the way you have made me is the way that is needed. Be a minister of the broken places. Minister always and everywhere to the Shekhinah in exile. Your path is not to avoid pain. It is not to avoid noise or disturbance or annoyance, but to see those things so that you may be my presence in them. This is detachment from ego, the process of ever decreasing the gap you experience between you and me. So that you see the world through my eyes, so that you see any pain or harm or sin or denial for what it is, a closing off from me and my never-ending love. Be a minister of the broken places, friends. Minister always and everywhere to she who dwells within in exile. Apparently, God dwells within, within exile. That, that doesn't, the sentence doesn't even make any sense. Your path is not to avoid pain, said the Bat Kol, to avoid noise. Or- yeah, the, the, she's speaking now as a prophet. She heard directly from the feminine spirit of God, the Bat Kol. Or disturbance or annoyance, but to see those things so that we might be God's presence in them. When this meditation finished and I ran out into the garden to write it down, literally the garden of Gethsemane, 
I found there a book that was open to this page that was described as Mahatma Gandhi's favorite hymn from the Hindu tradition. Notice it's the Hindu tradition now rather than the Hindu religion. They are the real lovers of God who feel others' sorrow as their own. When they perform selfless service, they are humble servants of the Lord. Respecting all, despising none, they are pure in thought, word, and deed. Blessed is the mother of such a child. And in their eyes, the divine mother shines in everyone they see. The divine mom, okay. They are always truthful, even-minded, never coveting others' wealth, free from selfish attachments, ever in tune with the holy name. Their bodies are like sacred shrines in which the Lord of love is seen. Free from greed, anger, and fear, these are the real lovers of God. So, friends, can you join hands, please? Yikes. I want to bless you to remember that hearing the voice of God does not mean that a plan for your life is about to be revealed. You will know that you are living the message of God in your life when your life is filled with delight, joy, kindness, peace, expansion, generosity, the very same energies that set in motion the very creation of the world. And when we see you, we will know in the words of Gandhi's favorite hymn, ever in tune with the holy name, your bodies like sacred shrines in which the Lord of love is seen, freed from greed, anger, and fear, we become true lovers of God. Okay, frightening, scary, wow. Um, Yeah, by the way, just a reminder, that was preached at a place that used to be a church, where Jesus Christ used to be proclaimed. It is now officially a synagogue of Satan. And what's being preached there? The goddess within you, mysticism, contemplative whatever, uh, feel goodism and 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 developing and, and, and inculcating a spirit within you that doesn't reject what other people say that embraces the truth that's to be found in all religions and so you can be practicing Buddhist meditation in a Catholic monastery as a quote Jewish rabbi. This is the broad road that leads to hell. And unless God grants Rabbi Shavah Bachli repentance for the forgiveness of her sins, namely idolatry, for Shemacha Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What she is preaching is utter blasphemy. And this is what happens when churches abandoned, abandon the authority of God's word and rather than preaching and proclaiming the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, shave off this, deny that, wander off into this, and to try to make the message more palatable for the culture, make compromises. These compromises have a destination, and the destination is what you just heard. The cesspool of mystical universalism. That's where liberal 
this this brand new postmodern liberalism leads as surely as night follows day. <sighs> wow, unbelievable. So uh what'd you think? I'd love to give your get your feedback. You can email me my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Repent and be forgiven. Amen. Amen.